They were predicted by Einstein in 1916, and we've gotten a handful of hints that they exist in just the past few decades, but we still haven't seen them firsthand. Gravitational waves. What are they, and what will it mean when we finally achieve a direct detection? I'm Meg Rosenberg, and today we take a look at these elusive waves and the strategies and instruments designed to capture them. What can they tell us about the cosmos, and what sort of objects and systems could possibly generate them to begin with? We're about to take a voyage, to sail over the fabric of space-time and look back at what our little planet has in the works to listen for a disturbance in the force. So think of the surface of the ocean as the surface of space-time, and then these ripples caused by a storm somewhere. And the storm, in our case, could be something cataclysmic like supermassive black hole binaries merging. That's Dr. Chiara Mingarelli, a Marie Curie fellow at Caltech in the Theoretical Astrophysics Group. She studies gravitational waves by taking advantage of a special kind of rotating neutron star that emits a very focused beam of electromagnetic radiation as it spins. These objects are called pulsars, and if you can identify a set of them distributed in all directions around the Earth, the pattern of flashes can help us to detect the ripples in space-time caused by that distant cosmic storm. These pulsars are like cosmic lighthouses, and they emit these flashes of light at very regular intervals. And gravitational waves can make it so that the light arrives a little bit early or a little bit late. And if light is arriving early or late in a very particular way, predicted by general relativity, then we can infer the existence of gravitational waves. So in this case, a direct detection of gravitational waves means measuring very small differences in the arrival times of light pulses, and the set of pulsars is called a pulsar timing array. So when galaxies merge, each galaxy has a supermassive black hole about uh, a million to a billion times the mass of the sun in its center. And when the galaxies merge, the supermassive black holes merge. And when they start merging, they start emitting these gravitational waves and causing this space-time storm. And what the effect of that we see on the Earth is, is the effect on these millisecond pulsars that we time. This kind of detector works really well if we're trying to detect gravitational waves at low frequencies or really long wavelengths, because we've been watching these pulsars and recording the timing of their flashes for about a decade. We time pulsars for about 10 years. And so if you want to change 10 years into a frequency, one over 10 years is a few nanohertz. And so that means that we can, in principle, be sensitive to gravitational waves with those very, very uh, small frequencies, so the nanohertz frequencies. And in this frequency range, there are two kinds of really interesting phenomena that we can study. So there's this random background that's generated by the superposition of gravitational waves from everywhere in the universe, right? So galaxies everywhere are merging and have been merging, you know, for a very long time. And that'll create this background of gravitational waves. And so we call this random background a stochastic background. The level of that background can tell us about galaxy mergers and uh, how often galaxies merge and you know, interesting information about that, that we have difficulty testing uh, using light waves. We can use gravitational waves to, to figure stuff like that out. 
So we have this gravitational wave background, which is called the stochastic background, because it's made up of these randomly distributed sources that have all been putting out their ripples in space-time for billions of years, creating this sort of cacophony of waves. And against this background, pulsar timing arrays can also allow individual sources, like a specific galaxy merger, to be distinguished. It's like being able to pick out a single violin against the sound of an entire orchestra tuning up. Now, there's also the possibility of detecting gravitational waves from individual galaxy mergers. You can actually measure the masses and the spins of these supermassive black holes if you know the distances to the pulsars in your pulsar timing array. And it's one of the only ways to get that information, period. These two approaches, looking at the level of the stochastic background on the one hand and picking out individual sources on the other, complement each other in telling us how often these galaxy mergers occur and where in the universe they're happening. And that's all within the low frequency range. 1 to 100 nanohertz. This range of gravitational wave frequencies that can be picked up using pulsar timing arrays. We have other tricks of our sleeve, however, for detecting gravitational waves at higher frequencies. For example, so for the higher frequency gravitational waves between uh, a few hertz to a kilohertz um, is theoretically detectable by ground-based interferometers. For these higher frequency ripples, which go through a whole cycle once every second, up to a thousand times a second, there's another kind of instrument that uses a completely different set of principles to pick up the signal. Instead of looking at the effects of gravitational waves on light pulses, slowing them down a little bit or speeding them up, this technique looks for the effects on the instrument itself. Here's Dr. Carrie Allison Hodge, who recently received her PhD from Caltech working on the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. So we take a laser and shoot it at a beam splitter, which sends half of the light down one arm of an L, and the other half of the light down the other arm of the L. That's how the LIGO observatories are set up. Two massive tunnels meet at a right angle, and a laser beam is shot down each one at exactly the same time. And it will bounce off mirrors that are at the ends of the arms of this L, four kilometers away. And if the arms are exactly the same length, when the light bounces back towards the center and comes out what we call the dark port, you won't see anything. That's because the two beams of laser light started at exactly the same time and have traveled exactly the same distance. But during all of this bouncing around, one of the beams gets flipped around so that when they recombine, they completely and perfectly cancel each other out. So as long as the two arms of this gigantic L are exactly the same length, we won't see any light coming out of the dark port. But if one of the arms is a little bit longer than the other arm, you will see light coming out of that formerly dark port. And the pattern of light that you'll see at that port will tell you what source was creating the gravitational wave that was propagating through the detector and causing those arm lengths to change. So instead of tiny changes in the timing of light flashes from pulsars, LIGO is looking for tiny changes in the length of these two very long tunnels. And the frequencies of gravitational waves that it's sensitive to are not so unfamiliar to us. It's basically the audio band. 
That's right, the kinds of cataclysmic events we're talking about, like collisions involving black holes or neutron stars, produce gravitational waves in the same frequency band that our ears are attuned to. One example is two black holes that are orbiting each other, and as they're orbiting each other, their separation is getting smaller and smaller due to the energy that is being released via these gravitational waves. And as the orbit gets smaller and smaller, the frequency increases and the amplitude of the gravitational waves increases until they finally merge and then settle into being one black hole. So you can hear the gravitational wave too if you just transform the, the frequency of the pattern of light into a sound, you can hear what the merger sounds like. That sound was actually modeled for an extreme mass ratio in spiral, meaning that one small object of 1 to 100 solar masses is spiraling into a much more massive black hole. Here's what it sounds like when two black holes spiral into each other. That increasing frequency as the two black holes get closer and closer together corresponds to a continuous increase in pitch, and the result is kind of this chirp or pop. And that's the kind of signal that LIGO is looking for. But there is a drawback to trying to listen for gravitational waves using this kind of ground-based interferometer. People walking by, cars driving by, a truck, a cloud, and these things kind of sound a bit ridiculous, but because uh, the detectors have to be so sensitive to look for gravitational waves and the size of the disturbance that they're looking for and the ground-based detectors is, you know, less than the width of a proton. And so when you're looking for something that's that small, a truck driving by is, is a disaster. <laughs> One way to address this noise issue is to put your interferometer into space. space. Which is exactly what another project, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, or LISA, aims to do. Unfortunately, though, that project has been delayed and is currently scheduled to launch sometime in 2034. Once it gets going, though, LISA will be most sensitive to gravitational waves in the intermediate frequency range, between pulsar timing arrays and LIGO. So which technique will win out first? Pulsar timing arrays searching for nanohertz gravitational waves formed by colliding galaxies? Or LIGO looking for neutron star collisions? Well, LIGO is currently being prepped for an upgrade, Advanced LIGO, to go online next year, and that could make a huge difference. Advanced LIGO has better lasers, and with the more laser power, they, they should be able to detect gravitational waves directly. For example, for mergers of two neutron stars, whereas before we expected one in a hundred years, it could go up to as high as a hundred in one year. So there's a really good chance that this direct detection will happen in the near future. But why does it matter so much? What will that tell us that we don't already know? Before the first direct detection of gravitational waves, pretty much the only way that we were discovering objects in space was via experiments that relied on the electromagnetic spectrum. So like visual observations, X-ray, gamma ray, th those sorts of things. And this opens up a whole new window to find things that are completely dark because you can't really see a black hole. And so you're able to, you know, if you use this analogy, listen for it using these gravitational wave detectors. So by listening for gravitational waves, we add a whole new sense to our toolkit. 
instead of just using our eyes and detecting light waves, we can use gravitational wave detectors as our ears and use them to find the kinds of things like black holes that are really hard to see otherwise. Even better, a direct detection will allow us to test the fundamental nature of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Really, you know, we're trying to understand gravity and if we can detect gravitational waves or even better, Einsteinian gravitational waves, uh, then it's another verification of general relativity. But we do have other theories and we've worked out what gravitational waves look like in alternative theories of gravity. And so we have models for that as well. So that can also be important for our fundamental understanding of gravity. We're poised on the brink of a direct detection, and it's not clear yet which approach will come through first. But whether it's pulsar timing arrays or ground-based interferometry, one thing's certain. Gravitational waves will open up a whole arsenal of possibilities to help us understand our universe better than ever before. So listen up. That's what these gravitational wave detectors are doing, and soon they might have some very exciting stories to tell. <laughs>